Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Welcome back to EMS on the Mountain. As usual, you've got Mike on the other side and me, or to, the competent one. Or to, give, <laughs> or, or to give another head tilt to EMS on the mountain. And for those of you that listen to other good EMS podcasts, you'll get that one. And if you don't, shame on you because the other podcast we're well, referring to is awesome. It's amazing. Anyway, All right. It is. All right. So we had a previous episode that discussed BLS medical kits for wellness providers. And this one is going to talk about kits for the advanced life support provider. Uh, a lot of this is really going to be geared more toward paramedics, although easily adaptable to the advanced DMT or for our NPS friends out there, the park medic level of provider. So again, just to reiterate, these are not first aid kits um, and equipment recommendations for, we'll say, layperson responders. We've had a separate episode that covered that. This is for actual certified licensed EMS providers operating under the, you know, the official EMS protocols and licensure of a physician. With that, wham, where are we? All right, so ALS responders. This is a tricky one because there's not, there's not a lot of big difference between the ALS kit and the BLS kit when it comes to the wilderness. A lot of it is when it comes to the invasive things, right? So big ones, and Michael hit this in a minute, but, you know, bleeding is bleeding, Airway is airway, you know, basic medical foundational care is foundational care, right? But these are things you need to be thinking about. And you, you need to be carrying all of this kit. So if you're new to this realm, you're simply interested in it, whatever it might be, you really got to start thinking. I don't want to see the cliche outside the box. Really, it's more inside the backpack. I'm going to coin that term, right? You got to think inside the pack. Because you got to be able to wow. carry these things. You didn't want to be cliche, and then you went straight. And then cliche. I invented one. That was I invented. That was yeah, impressive. but I invented it. Was that off right? the cuff, or were you thinking about that one? No, that's actually off the cuff. That's how good I am. Okay, all right. Much, much like my care, right out the pocket. Just there it is. Don't know if it's right or wrong, but man, they didn't die. <laughs> that's how. Yeah, and there I was. Okay, so as an ALS provider in an ambulance, you have a boatload of tools, boxes, bags, whatever it might be, full of drugs, a lot of advanced diagnostics equipment available to you, other advanced equipment period, airway, et cetera, right? You're not going to get all that in a backpack. Now, if you're operating at another austere remote environment, we've kind of talked about these places before, like a gas oil platform or a very remote clinic, you're going to, well, hopefully you'll have access to a lot of this a lot more readily. But for the wilderness provider who's actually in the woods, your ALS skills, the vast majority of it is going to be in your brain, right? It's going to be your knowledge, that advanced pathophysiology, disease process, injury patterns, et cetera. They're going to really be your biggest bang for the buck. With that, uh, Mike's going to cover really all, all the big component areas that we talked about in BLS kits and highlight any differences, if any. So hopefully you've listened to our previous episode. So for bleeding, I don't think there's a whole lot to be said, quite frankly. Bleeding is bleeding is bleeding. I don't know of any, I'm sure there's a wilderness team out there, but I don't know of anybody that's hiking in with blood and uh, 
short of saline or ringers. There's not a whole lot more to be done for bleeding. You could put palliative care for blood pressure in that department, but uh, there's some other equipment that we'll talk about here at the end uh, to better diagnose bleeding. But as far as care of bleeding, right, the stopping of the blood coming out of the body, turns out that is squarely in the realm of BLS skills that you're supposed to have. And quite frankly, when you go to paramedic school, you don't gain a bunch of like, and this is how you stop bleeding as a paramedic. Like bleeding is bleeding and you should stop it. So no big changes. I think the only thing you could say would be TXA if you're carrying it. I will agree with that, but I'm going to put that in the medication department, not yeah, the bleeding control department. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, that's appropriate. Yeah. I mean, we can go down the road of saying, you know, blood administration too. But I mean, at the end of the day, right, that's not about stopping the bleeding. That's about extending time or supporting, actually supporting the not breaking down of existing clots to get people to a doctor place so that a surgeon can make them gooder, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But when it comes to Move actually on. major bleeding and, and external bleeding care, not a whole lot that's going on. No, major or minor not. bleeding, right? Tourniquets or tourniquets. Blood's got to stay in the body. Stop it from coming out. We're off to the races. I don't know. Uh, orthopedics as well. I'm just, yeah. just going to jump right to orthopedics right now. Here we go. Ready? Leaping into orthopedics. That's the same too. Splinting <laughs> and triangle bandages and sling and swath and all the things related to orthopedic injuries. That is... To harken back to my paramedic school analogy, you don't learn a whole bunch of new ways to splint broken legs when you go to paramedic school. In fact, <laughs> most paramedic schools say, you're already an EMT. You know how to split a broken leg. Don't screw it up. Yeah. Don't forget to palpate the pulses during your test. Have a nice day. As, as I recall, I don't think we ever did a splinting thing other than I outside think of literally, I think Ray at one point said, hey, fools, don't forget to palpate and check for sensation because yeah. everybody forgets to do that. All right, moving on. And that was the end of our splinting conversation. Yeah. I say, so. yeah. <laughs> but orthopedics yeah. are largely the same, right? I'm going to draw a distinct line between orthopedic management, i.e. the splinting of the orthopedic injury and pain management. Pain management is yes. very different for an ALS provider. But again, we're going to handle that in the medications department. So as far as orthopedics injuries, not a whole lot of difference from what we talked about in our last episode around equipment you should be carrying, right? Learn to use a SAM splint. We like Coflex. And uh, that's about kind of the gist of it. Moving on to airway management. This is largely the same with some additions. This is where we're going to advocate for you should be carrying the NPAs as we discussed in the last episode. Providers should have a BVM. But now as an ALS provider, you should probably have something, at least a superglottic airway, in your kit, a set of superglottic airways for at least adult size, normal adult peoples on a regular. Uh, it can get spendy for a system to be buying pediatric size superglottic airways and tossing them out most of the time. Yeah. But uh, in a wilderness environment, in places where you could be dealing with people that have head injuries or fell down and hit their head, as an ALS provider, you should be able to at least place a superglottic airway, if not intubate them. That's system dependent, that's protocol dependent, that's organizationally dependent, that's supply dependent. Uh, Sean and I do have equipment to intubate people. We keep it in a separate kit. It comes with us if we think we might need it. But the ability to place a superglottic or a ET tube is the real addition for an ALS set of equipment. Any thoughts there, Sean? No, I think uh, the only thing I would add is, is, as you mentioned, like with the advanced airway stuff, 
this is not something you might carry with you every time you go into the backcountry, but something that can be a modular kit, like Mike mentioned, like, hey, we have word that this person is really messed up. Okay, let's grab the advanced airway kit, and that's something else we can just take with us as a module and not require us to carry smaller components of all the time with us. Because again, mm-hmm. for most wilderness things, airway is not is usually not an issue. It can be. And so if you're suspecting pretty bad mechanism or you have reports that your patient needs it, being able to have that small advanced airway module ready to go is is key. That's a good point. And it's this is a complete aside, but it's worth note that we've experienced recently. Even if not everyone in your system is an ALS provider, having having the crews you work with on a regular basis be familiar with where your equipment is or what it looks like or being able to call on the radio and say, those of you coming in behind me, I need my blah, 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 is super useful. And we've recently experienced that, where not having to describe what my airway bag looks like to someone that is not familiar with my airway bag made a difference in how quickly they got the airway bag to me. So. Yeah. yeah, and that's a solid point, is uh, make sure it's either really well labeled and staged so that people can find it and get it to you. And that worked out good for Mike because they knew exactly what we wanted and they brought exactly what we needed which turned out really good. All right, let's move on to medical emergencies, my man. All right, so very similar to the BLS level, there's not going to be a whole lot of changes with with many of these. Uh, Top one right now, hypoglycemia. Big one, if you're doing your glucose checks and you get a finger stick and it's like, oh, you're a little bit low, let's give you a little sugar. Again, just like BLS level, if they're awake, they're alert, and you're carrying your oral glucose, you just give them the goo, see if that's going, see if that works for them. If not, you get on scene, they're completely altered, maybe totally unresponsive. You do that glucose check because you're carrying a glucometer and it's like 40 and you're like, ah, well, here might be my problem. For us, IV access, uh, depending on where you work, D50 or D10, you know, flow that, that, that glucose directly into the veins and, you know, give them that little bit of pep and wake up and off you go. Other than that, really nothing else, right? Allergic reactions. Can I point Uh, one thing out about hypoglycemia in the woods? It is a common practice for ALS providers in a front country scenario to bop on into Bob's house. And Bob is a little snarky and he's got a blood sugar of 60 or 50 or 40. 40 is getting pretty low, but let's call it 40 for giggles. We finally convinced Bob to to let us get a line. And Bob is really bad at managing his, his glucose, as it were. We finally talk to middle us get a line. We're old school, so we're going to push some D50. And we, we put some maple syrup into his veins, hang a bag, get his blood sugar up, have a nice chat. Bob becomes friendlier. Get his blood sugar over 60, over 80, whatever your standing protocol is. Bob decides he doesn't want to go to the hospital. We DC the, the IV and we punch out. And Bob has a nice day. If you're in the backcountry and somebody's having a hyperglycemic, hypoglycemic event, they are probably exerting themselves more than normal, and if they are diabetic, they will go into hypoglycemia again. If somebody is having a hypoglycemic event and you need to go treat them in the woods, you need to stay with them until they are no longer in the woods because <laughs> the waiver and have a nice day, enjoy the rest of your hike is not going to work. You're just going to yeah. see them again, right? Somebody that's diabetic and is is having problems with hypoglycemia on the trail is probably teetering. I'm not going to say they are, but they're teetering on some other endocrine level or other complications, right? Could be dehydration. It could be a lot of things that are going to be coming along with. I don't normally go hiking in the hot sun, but my family thought it would be fun. 
This is not a get their blood sugar up, have a nice day, waver and punch out. Here's a peanut butter sandwich. You really need to get them out of the back country and stay with them because it's going to come up again. Anyway, yeah, off my soapbox. No. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point because, yeah, like Mike mentioned, like if you're hiking and walking down trail, you're going to metabolize the sugars you have to build the energy you have. And you're going to blow through that quick. That that bag of D10 or an Ampa D50 is not going to last you another two hours to get off trail, assuming you have that long, whatever. You're not hanging out at home watching TV, right? Yeah. There's exertion going on. So be aware. Essentially, same same thing with our next one, dehydration, right? ALS providers, IV access, fluid. Is this the end-all be-all? Nope. First go-to for me is always just like BLS level. If you can drink water on your own, you're going to drink water. I'm going to add you some rehydration salts to it, get your electrolytes back up. And that's what it's going to be. Worst case, or I say, I won't say worst case. Worst case is you're, you know, you, 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 Unconscious, totally, that's worse. Yeah. You, yeah. That's what I'm saying is you've totally gotten off the edge and we have to do real work now. Plan mm-hmm. B is IV access and, and me giving you saline intravenously. Yeah. I'm giving it to you straight to the source. But again, a lot of these people are going to be really dehydrated. And IV access might not be quite as easy as you want it to be. And most of them are going to be on the less less healthy body composition side of things as well. So just finding a vein easy is not always going to go as smooth as you want it to. Allergic reactions. Uh, Well, hang on. Let's talk about dehydration because I got all kinds of thoughts all of a sudden. My brain works. Okay. Oh, (laughs) I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole on ringers versus saline. I'm just going to say administer whatever you got. I do happen to work in one place that is both. And so dealer's choice, except where the protocol says thou shall do this or that. What I will say, this is based on some experience, not me personally, but someone that's altered that you believe is dehydrated and you're going to tap a vein and dump some fluid in them. You need to be checking lung sounds. You need to be doing all of your other checks and you need to be conscious of the fact that if they are dehydrated enough that they are altered and you believe that this is a dehydration-related event, dumping fluid into their veins and then letting them wave is a recipe for disaster. We've harped on this many a time in the last episode. I'm going to bring it up here again. Fluid, even quote-unquote normal saline, 0.9% saline fluid, is not going to balance out those electrolytes if they're, especially if this is a trail run or an athletic event where their electrolytes are thrown off, you need to get some electrolyte support on board as well to help them stabilize. Yeah, enough about that. I will not talk anymore, I promise. <laughs> okay. He's a liar. So, uh, yeah, let's just caveat this now. With most ALS level, like legitimate ALS level calls in the wilderness, very seldom are you ever going to let your patient wave and refuse further care and transport. They might end up refusing transport when you get them off trail, but that's a whole different thing to ensure they have an actual legitimate responsible ride that whether they lie to you or not, but says, yes, I'm going to take him to a doctor now. That's a different thing. But yeah, like Mike said, for most like legitimate ALS patients, not just, oh, you're feeling a little bad. Well, here's a little saline and here you go. Right. Actual ALS Mm -hmm. patients should probably never be allowed to wave while on trail. And on that allergic reactions, as we mentioned in our BLS episode, Diphenhydramine for mild allergic reactions. This is, you know, maybe a little localized rash from contact with poison ivy, poison oak, bee sting, minor 
allergic reactions. OTC meds are generally the thing. You could do intravenous diphenhydramine if you're feeling froggy with it. I mean, we carry it. I don't think I've ever given intravenous diphenhydramine for just a simple allergic reaction. It's usually the follow-up to the big one, an anaphylactic reaction, right? And as you should all know, someone in anaphylaxis, it's epinephrine all day, every day as your primary line one treatment, right? So as an ALS provider, you should, especially if you're working in a wilderness environment, have epinephrine with you in your kit at all times, everywhere, right? I don't care if you're in the desert, the jungles, there's something out in that environment that somebody's going to be allergic to, and you need to be able to treat it. What was initially just a, oh, they're not feeling well and they've got some shortness of breath. When you get on scene, turns out to be, oh, I know what the problem is here, and you better have your epi, and you better be able to administer it fairly quickly. Uh, and with that, I mean, know what your concentration is. What are you carrying? Are you carrying straight one to 1,000 vials? Do you have a rogue one to 10,000 with you in the backcountry, which maybe you do for various other reasons? Do you have your syringes? Where's your needles? And are you prepared to do it? And the answer to that as an ALS provider is, well, of course, I'm an ALS provider. And that's, again, you're not going to let them wave like, oh, you can breathe now? Cool, sign here. Nope, you're, I'm walking you to the trail. I'm really going to try and encourage you to get on an ambulance and go to a hospital just because the biphasic nature of an anaphylactic reaction, you need to be seen, right? And again, if you're going to follow that up, you can follow that up with your Benderil or your diphenhydramine as appropriate, depending on where you're at. Other solumedrol or some other stuff, dry out secretions, if you think that's going to be an issue for people. Remember, it's a long-term thing, kind of like the Benadryl. That's a provider's choice. Work within your protocol piece. It probably doesn't problem? need to be said, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway. Right? The <laughs> half-life on epinephrine for an allergic reaction is short. It's yeah. maybe 15 minutes on the outside if you're lucky. Yep. If you are deep, deep into the woods and you have two vials of epinephrine, that's a total of 30 minutes to get them to the trailhead. So if it took you longer than that to get to them, it's certainly going to take longer than that to get them out. Sean uh, can do med math and he knows that's 90 minutes. Wow. You're an amazing human being, Sean. <laughs> not sure how you got to 90 minutes, but I'm not going to judge you. Three adult doses per vial. Check. Yes. 45 minutes per vial, 90 minutes. Okay. I math. see where you're getting. Yeah. Med <laughs> math. But give or take, right? If it's, if it's going to be an extended extrication, you should be ready for the refractory. Oh, yeah. Access. And a vial or two just isn't necessarily going to cut it. So, yeah. as I said, it didn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. So I did. <laughs> and, that, and that is the last time he's going to say something. Yeah, that's totally not, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, all right, continue. So, cardio problems, right? This is a tricky one. Unless you have a very, very strong suspicion that your patient is in deep, deep cardiovascular compromise, carrying cardio meds beyond what we'll say epinephrine generally doesn't occur. Because what's the one thing you're going to need to verify which meds you should be administering and why? That's your monitor, right? If I can't see what your heart's doing besides you're slow and maybe irregular, it's going to be very hard for me to justify giving you any other agents that are going to affect your cardiovascular performance one way or the other, whether I'm going to try and speed you up or slow you down, right? I can't tell the difference between, you know, or VTAC or SVT just 
by a pulse ox, me listening with a stethoscope and trying to feel for a pulse, it's all fast, right? 140 beats, 150 beats, 160 beats, 180 beats. You can't count that manually anyway, right? And if without a monitor, with me being able to see it, choosing a cardiovascular drug and just pushing it blindly is probably not a good idea. So your ah, cardio meds. MEO. You'll be fine. If shot, then MEO. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah, because I carry an AD in my pocket. Yeah, um, just saying. Which they yeah, have nice portable totally small too, right? Because you're yeah. carrying that refrigerator into the woods with the car. That's right, yeah. So, yeah. Pick a beta blocker, just shoot for it. You never know. Yeah. yeah uh, so your it. cardio meds, generally not a thing. Same with your respiratory problems. Our agency that does we do provide support to does provide backcountry, we'll say, O2 airway kits. They're trying to get carbon fiber tanks so they're lighter weight for folks mm-hmm. to carry. And they have fairly decently outfitted now backpacks for these providers to take into the backcountry that do have a tank with them. So you realistically, you could provide some oxygen. You could provide a NEB. And again, that's going to Somebody recently did. Uh, I say, yeah, and we know yeah, some folks that, happened. that did do that recently. What you're going to have to remember with that, though, is time and duration, right? So a small D cylinder, whether it's steel, aluminum, or carbon fiber, has only got a limited supply of oxygen for you. So if I have to give a NEB, I can give the NEB, can still provide a little supplemental O2, maybe hit you another NEB, maybe two, right? But eventually that D cylinder is going to go and that's all you've got. You got to weigh the pros and cons of having somebody bring more or whether you are going to bring one specifically yourself into the woods for this purpose. So that's going to be very much a situationally dependent type of scenario. And even if it's available, like my God, if all you had were steel cylinders and you said, here, carry this too, it would be like, uh, no, you carry it. Right. I've already got too much stuff. That's just I did one that more years ago. I carried four steel cylinders for a guy. Yeah. And it was well, miserable. That's all I would carry though. I wouldn't have any of my other kit. If you just need me to, to, I was, I was look. mostly humping the oxygen for the team, but yeah, see, it was a regulatory yeah. thing. And it was, I mean, this, this is going to date me, but it was going back to, the, you know, back in the day of if trouble, then high flow. Yeah. And I had, there were a couple others that had a few other tanks, but I had four or five tanks in my backpack and that's all I was carrying. And in retrospect, that was a bad idea, but yeah, I did it. Yeah. Yeah. These are things that you do once and go, oof, no, no more. Right. You learn from like when I carry the cardiac monitor down trail, you learn from yeah. that. All right. Yeah. So general illness, really that goes back into basically BLS level stuff, a little palliative care, maybe have some emodium. You can, you know, again, think IV fluids. If they've had long bouts of nausea, vomiting, you know, they're going to be dehydrated. Fluids will be a good thing for them. But aside from that, there's really not much else you're going to be giving them pre-hospitally in the woods, even, even in a, you know, an urban ambulance system for general medical stuff. There's very little we do beyond IV access, maybe some fluids for dehydration and transport. So not, not much else. Like Zofran. Zofran. Eh, yeah. It, but again, it kind of goes down to if, if you've just been nauseous for the last two hours and you haven't been puking everywhere yet, I may or may not consider it. Where Mike and I are at, we also have access to the tabs as well as as liquid IV stuff. You might get a tab. It's like, all right, let's just see. But if you haven't puked yet, providers thing. I mean, if they're to, if the, if they just keep vomiting, the Zofran's not going to help anyway. So if they've got like they drank a, you know non purified water out of a rogue stream, 
they've got Giardia or something like that. Your yeah, Zofran's not going to help. So, but you know, it is an option. You can consider it. Not that we're going to talk a lot of off-label use, but for those that do actual wilderness nastier stuff, diphenhydramine actually is an anti-emetic as well. Not as strong, but it is something that could be used if you're authorized to go, what we say, off-label with your drugs. Uh, speaking yeah. of drugs, strong, so yeah. if you have access to fenugreek, that might be able to help if they've been vomiting. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's definitely stronger. Right? Yeah, we don't. So no, we do. We we do not. Well. The one place but, I work does, but yes, do not, not in the woods. Not in the woods, we don't. Yeah. So onto our meds. So as an ALS provider, you should have all the same meds that you would as a BLS provider, which again, which a lot of times is going to be limited to OTCs, uh, maybe epinephrine, depending on where you work and things like that. So it'd be the same baseline BLS meds you'd want to be carrying. And if you listen to our pain management episode, don't discount the use of OTCs in your analgesic plan, right? The use of ibuprofen and acetaminophen as a combination is fantastic. Don't overlook it just because you're an ALS provider and have access to, you know, fentanyl and ketamine and morphine, et cetera, which takes us into pain management. In fact, we've, we've recently had our medical director explicitly tell us, not recently, but this was a while ago, that when we gave someone fentanyl for pain, he also wanted us to get Tordal. Now this was IV yeah. as opposed to orally, but it's just it's just ibuprofen. He wanted the the uh, the. Well, wanted the anti-inflammatory. For he the, wanted the anti-inflammatory property for the right? total. Yeah. So don't overlook the oral medications and the benefit it can provide to somebody just because you can start an IV and push a, a vial of medication. Exactly. All right. So ALS providers. Now this will vary. Most of the paramedic level providers providers will have access to at least fentanyl and morphine or one of the two depending on where you work. Mike and I have access to both. You may also have ketamine. And as Mike mentioned earlier, we have Tordal or Ketorolac. Now, if you're an advanced DMT or park medic, depending on where you are in your jurisdiction and the medical director, you may have all of those. You may be limited to just a couple. So that all depends. All right. But you do have some options. Uh, if you want to know more about these drugs and some of their considerations in the backcountry, go back and listen to our, our pain management episode. We're not going to get deep into that now. Just make sure that as an ALS provider, one of the best things you can do for somebody who's injured in the woods is provide some pain relief, especially if you're having to try and splint some of these more significant orthopedic injuries. It really helps. Sedation, normally not a, a big deal for the wilderness provider. We'll say average calls, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the one... And only time, well, not one and only, but the most common use I have ever found for sedation was not in excited patients necessarily. It was the, hey, let's get you a healthy dose of ketamine on board because you have a fractured femur and I've got to move some stuff around to get you inside a Stokes basket and start a down trail. So I want the pain relief and I want the sedation. So I don't want this to be a horrible, painful thing for you to experience. And that's when normally we end up sedating people. Or if you're trying to do a short-term bout of some sedation for maybe a, a dislocation reduction, right? But aside from that, yep. we're looking at smaller doses. We're not trying to totally snow somebody and lay them out for hours. But mild sedation, just so you can take care of those more painful procedures and get them moving. Yeah, uh, I mean, from a from a orthopedic injuries perspective, it's really femurs, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's those major, I've really got to move this femurs, to do better. It's dislocations. 
Yeah, hips. Other than that, you know, that are major, major trauma. But yeah, if they're if if we're sedating for major trauma, I'm not too worried about your broken femur. Other than yeah, no, that's the least of my concerns at that point. Internally, least of my concerns. Yep. Yeah, and of course, if you do happen to have somebody who is experiencing seizure activity, then your access to benzos is good, right? So you can at least stop the. I mean, you're stopping the brain from misfiring, but you can you can at least stop the the seizure activity, especially if you're going to have to evacuate them. Somebody who's actually having tonic-clonic seizures inside of Stokes, which I've seen once, is not conducive to transport or their health, right? So diphenhydramine, IV, you, we talked about that a little bit. Did you treat the seizures or was it just something you had to deal with? I can't remember. I was assisting on that one with another medic and they, right. and it, you know, they got, I think it was probably Versed is what we were still carrying at the time, but yeah. But it was like, oh, snap. Hey, man, they're seizing. And it was like, good. We have an IV access already in place. and Just shut them down and keep an eye on it. All right. But, you know, that brings up other issues. Like if you're dealing with a patient who starts seizing, and this could be that severe trauma patient whose brain activity is now causing seizures, airway is another big piece that you're going to have to consider. So you got to use that big paramedic brain, like I said, and start thinking about, okay, do I really want to lay them out? Do I worry about breathing and all these other things now? So. You got to know all the tools in your toolbox and their appropriate uses. Yeah. Anyway. So I have on the list IV diphenhydramine. Again, that's going to be more of a follow-up to your anaphylactic patient. Like you've shown up on scene, you've treated the anaphylaxis, you've got the airway under control. You can gain IV access. Now admit some IV diphenhydramine, get it on board, start doing its antihistamine actions. You know, it's if you have it, great. Again, if they're having an anaphylactic thing, you all know this, but... First line is definitely your epi. Nausea, we talked about that a little bit already. If you've got access to an anti-emitic type drug with you, whether it's Zofran or Phenergan, use it as appropriate. But usually with those, you got to get ahead of the vomiting for them to be most effective. Yeah. Epinephrine, we've talked about quite a bit. Uh, Again, your big one is going to be your allergic reactions. This is one that I think also has a a dual use in trauma. If you have to perhaps put together a drip or a push dose, if you've got somebody who's starting to have some cardiovascular compromise and you need to get a little boost in there. So have an epi handy, not just for anaphylaxis is not a bad thing, right? But if you're going to start doing push dose and things like that, make sure you know how to do your, your, your med math and do your stuff. And um, we're not going to cover that in this one, but it's one it's in there, something for you to consider. Uh, what else we got? Antibiotics. This is one that's definitely normally at the advanced provider level because you're going to be given IV antibiotics, normally a big broad spectrum antibiotic. And normally this is reserved for large open wounds and specifically for open fractures, right? So you snap that femur and it comes right out or your tip fib and you've got bones poking on through or a forearm. Mike had a girl years ago that like just about almost tore an arm off. That uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, was, she never got antibiotics for me though. I was busy, but no, we had some other priorities that day. It was right? it was down the list of things that we never got to. But yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's usually what you find antibiotics for, especially IV antibiotics specifically for wilderness nuster providers. Is those big open wounds again? Like Mike mentioned uh, in the BLS podcast, getting those antibiotics on board earlier is much better to prevent the infection that's going to come down the road. You got to think about your environment. There's no clean, austere place, right? It just, that's the way it is. I mean, there's bacteria in the Antarctic 
Now, chances are it's pretty slim there, but stuff exists. Environmental specific drugs. This definitely gets more into paramedic level things, but your meds, and we're not going to talk specifics here because we'll talk about that when we talk about some of our environmental issues. But for altitude, there's definitely a few drugs that are out there that are used treating high altitude cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, et cetera. Some other meds you might find if you're working in a, a tropic environment, very specific. And a lot of this could be antibiotics. Again, infection is a big deal, especially in those cold or not cold, but warm, wet environments like the jungle. And again, we've talked about cardiac and pulmonary drugs a little bit. Probably not going to carry a lot of these. These are definitely going to be more in your more fixed site, remote places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's just, unless you know it's you're... Probably worth, it's, it's probably worth doing a whole... I'll just put this on the list of things to do in the future, but we're talking about austere medicine on whole. Uh, it's probably worth doing an entire episode of base camp care and medications yeah. and things there as well, right? Yeah. Uh, expeditionary medicine, which is slightly different than what we're talking about here. We're talking about 911 response in yeah. this particular episode, but it's probably exactly. worth an episode in the future and expeditionary medicine and, and what is encompassed in that, right? Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And uh, so that's really um, a bit... On meds, anything else on meds you can think of, Mike? ALS levels. No, just this isn't directly related to medication, but in my experience, there's a lot of reference materials now that are on iPhones. Mm, um, mm-hmm. If you are carrying particular medications and you do not use them every day, or this is a secondary position for you and you have some medications that you don't normally carry, you need to get familiar with them or you need to write down all of the aspects or have them on flip cards. Uh, just like with the documentation aspect, not uh, being able to reference your medication, your dosing, especially for medications you don't use all the time. Let's say your wilderness job is a secondary gig. You know, for example, I, I referenced, uh, I don't remember what I referenced earlier, but you know, if you have benzos typically, but your particular agency is Keppra, well, Keppra is a very different dosing than a benzo for a seizure. So mm, yeah, do not right. rely on your cell phone for dosing information. If these are medications you don't use on a regular, write it down, take the time to make cards by a laminator and have the referential information available to you because cell phone service in the woods is something you can't rely on. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. Like a lot of providers like where we're at, well, mm-hmm. ketamine, we have ketamine up where we work. We won't go into the, the dosing and, and protocol guidance on it, but I know some other providers who even at the ALS level, Ketamine is a med control only thing. Like you'll give ketamine at this dose in this route kind of thing. And yeah. so when they when they first get ketamine, it's like you're free to use this as appropriate within these bounds. It's like, ooh, well, I don't know how much I should be given with this. Well, do your research, learn, and you're better yeah. like morphine. Like in my urban service, we don't carry morphine. But for my wilderness part, we do have morphine. So I have to brush up on morphine, you know, because it's got a different half-life. It's got different expected results with your patient, you know, it definitely has more of that suppressing activity on your cardiorespiratory system that fentanyl doesn't have. It's got the vasculature effects that fentanyl doesn't. Yeah. So yeah, so you yeah, just yeah. need you to know to, that stuff. Yeah. Right? So you have to be aware of these things. And yeah. And if yeah. it's not a common drug for you, then you need to be aware of it. And a good one would be like for Mike or I supporting an expedition somewhere, if we're going up at mm-hmm. altitude and they're like, Hey, and you're going to get these drugs for altitude use. I would definitely need to brush up on those because being what we're at normally, it's not a drug I use. I'm familiar with it. I understand it generally how they work, but I would need to do a good refresher to look at my dosing. What are the actual, you know, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, et cetera. And how is this going to actually do what I need it to do? 
So just yep. be aware of that. Yeah. And don't count on having your cell phone and having service. It just, it's that's just, a bad plan. It's not going to happen. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about equipment real quick. We mentioned in the BLS episode, uh, BP cuts, death scope, pulse ox. We talked about it quite a bit. Glucometer. Uh, guess what gang? That doesn't change in a wilderness environment just because you're an ALS provider. The chances of you carrying a cardiac monitor and an automatic blood pressure cuff into the woods are pretty slim. They're not happening, so don't rely on it. Know how to take a blood pressure, and quite frankly, be proficient and be ready to trend, right? We're, we talk about it a lot on the podcast. We're getting into extended care here. We're getting into two, three, four, five-hour periods that we're with somebody. Two blood pressures over five hours is not really trending. It's uh, taking a peek because I remembered to take their blood pressure. So all those tools still apply as an, as an ALS provider. I've probably said enough about that. But you got to, especially blood pressure, man, if you're pushing meds, you got to be monitoring blood pressure. You just have to. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of those things that infuriates me when I hear after actions. And it's like, you gave how much morphine and you had no blood pressure? Like, good job. And it happens a lot. It does happen a lot. Sean was just telling me about this before we started recording. I did not know these were as prevalent in the market, but apparently urine test strips are a thing. Yeah, um, dog. I'm I'm just learning about this. So you want to talk about what you're playing with right now or what you've been peeing on? Well, it, it goes back when you start dabbling in the world of critical care, right? You're, you know, you have to learn about and understand a bunch of different lab values, depending on what agency you work with, how much those really mean to your actual practice is a different story. But one way that as an ALS provider, primarily paramedics, obviously, whether you're critical care certified or not, is being able to look at your patients and kind of get a, depending on your patient, a rough idea of what some of their blood chemistry might be. And you're not going to get detailed analysis, right? These are simple, most of them are like at-home type test kits. They do have hospital grade ones, which really kind of function at the same level. They just give smaller, we'll say community hospitals an opportunity to look for things. Okay. Um, but you know, like you, like you have uh, a medical patient and you're suspecting perhaps rhabdo, right? That might be a good example or a patient. You're really, man, I don't know what's going on. They're all kinds of gonked out. Like, let's see if we can get this. If you can get a good clean urine sample, you can try and get a test. Like you can get some loose labs, right? And these aren't going to give you like specific numbers. They're going to give you a, you're below an average. You're right in the window of what a normal reading should be, or you're high. Mm-hmm. They can help trend you some stuff. Like the one of the ones I've been playing around with a little bit. It's pretty common with what some of these do, but it look at your leukocytes, your nitrites, you know, your urobilogen, protein, pH, like protein and pH in blood. Right, those three right there are pretty good indicators. If you have somebody that you think might be having rhabdo issues, mm-hmm. right? Specific gravity, yeah, yes or no. Ketones could be useful if you're thinking somebody might be on the hyperglycemic side, right? They're you know, you're, you did your glucometer and you got a 300, 400. It's like, wow, let's uh, pee on this, right? Get a sample, get a dip. And it's like, oh yeah, these are way high. And that might give you a little more confirmation that, yeah, this is definitely, you know, a hyperglycemic emergency. We need to do some work with that. Bilirubin and glucose. Again, the glucose, you're going to use your glucometer. It's just going to tell you if you're at low, medium or not medium, but normal or high. But it's mm-hmm. a way that you can just do we'll call it simple labs. And this is definitely one of those situations that applies not to the, we'll say necessarily the two to four hour patient. Maybe that would definitely very much depend on, on, on their presentation and your, 
what your suspicions are, whether you'd really want to go for it. But if you've got that really sick person, you're having to spend that eight, 10, 12, 18 hours with before you can get them evacuated. This might be something where you want to be able to look at and maybe do a couple of tests and get some of those trends like blood in the urine. Oh, okay. Well, that's not a good thing. Blood in the urine. And oh, we're down to more of a normal level or it's zero now and we're clear. How useful is it? I don't know. I haven't had a a patient to actually apply this to yet. Just been in some readings I've done lately and actually several months ago. But so it's something I'm toying with. Haven't really put together a kit to take into the field yet, but uh, I might, you know, they're the kit I bought. The strips are individually packaged. So you're not like cracking open a vial of like, like glucometer test strips where you're breaking up a whole vial of 50. It's one at a time. So I might start bringing them out. And uh, if anything, I'll pee on your strip for you, Sean. Yeah. I mean, once, once every three years, I might have a patient I want to use it on. Yeah. So it's not a common use case, but they're out there. And I got educated tonight. So uh, thus you. Yeah. Something to think Avid about. Listener. If it applies to your practice, then uh, think about it. Maybe, Maybe something, something you want to look find useful. All right. Moving on. IV access. You need all the supplies for IV access. Enough said. Yeah. You should also seriously consider if it's within your scope and within your agency's regulations to have manual, and I'm going to be explicit about this, manual IO tooling as well. Jam sheeties, or I really like, what is it, the striker? The no, hands? Sam. Jammy, Sam it doesn't medical. require batteries. Sam, Sam, it's not striker. Yeah. Sam Medical, yeah. They just came out recently with an IO drill that is, uh, it doesn't have any batteries, it's hand-driven. But yeah. you, you pull the trigger and it turns the needle. I really, I haven't seen one in person yet, but I really like that one. Because yeah. it's not a battery that I'm carrying into the woods. It's not like the the easy IO. Easy IO is a great tool, but I don't want the weight and I don't want the reliance on a sealed battery in the backcountry. Uh, but if you really, really, I mean, if you really, really, truly have sick people in the woods that have been out there for a while and you need access, you need access. And as as good as all of us paramedics are at getting access, there are some patients that are very, very hard, right? I mean, yeah. you try a jugular and you just can't get it. Like eventually you need access, right? This is kind of, I don't want to say it's the difference between life and death, but it could be the difference between life and death. So having a backup IO solution is not a bad idea. No, um, absolutely not. Just like in your urban settings. I mean, a lot of places, especially like for a cardiac arrest, you know, initial access is IO and then they work traditional. Right. You know, same mm-hmm. thing in the wilderness. Your first go-to might be traditional. And it's like, man, I just can't get something, but I really got to get some fluids or meds on board. Well, we're drilling. And if you've mm-hmm. got whatever method you've got for IO access, yeah, try to have that as a backup. Yeah. Just don't limit yourself, right? If you're coming with yeah. it, I mean, this is not, this cannot be a hard and fast rule, right? Follow your medical direction, blah, blah, blah. I should never say blah, blah, blah when talking about following medical direction, but blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but if, if IO is within your scope and within your standing protocols, then you're limiting yourself greatly if you get the really sick patient that you can't get IV access on and you don't have the tool. So consider it. Yeah. All right. Enough on that. Lights. We've talked about that ad nauseum. You should have them. Please yeah. bring some lights. Yeah. Headlamps. Uh, have a headlamp and a decent flashlight at a minimum in your med kit. In your med kit. Not just on your person. In the med kit. In nope. your med and then backups to backups and then batteries for the backups, right? Yep. It is really exactly. hard to do medicine in the dark if you can't see what you're doing. Yeah. I use a headlamp. I actually use a headlamp. I find in, in the the agency I work for that's pretty rural, I actually keep a headlamp on my person because a headlamp is actually a pretty useful tool to just hang around my neck or pick up with my teeth. Yeah. Uh, 
when I'm on the side of the road. No, before any ambulance I mean, is there. So yeah, so that's I have one that's in my response kit on my urban ambulance as well inside my little bag full of stuff. Good, high power, yep. nice and bright guy. Because yeah, those MVAs on the side of the road, you may or may not be next to like all the other apparatus with their lights on. Uh, big one, which I mystified everybody with, was this past winter when we had really, really bad winter snowstorms and we lost a lot of power. Mm-hmm. Still getting calls in houses and it's like, hey, can you flip the lights on? No, you can't because nobody's got power. And it's really useful if I can flip on that headlight and still Keep do hands-free hands work yeah. and do evaluations, do my stuff. So headlamps, people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, between yeah, Mike and I, hands. we probably have a dozen headlamps when we go back country between the two of us. What? Yeah. Between the two of us, between our packs and our kits, like there's one in yeah. my ALS kit, there's one in my pack, there's one in my person. I mean, I, I probably own three dozen headlamps, but I've been doing oh, this God. for a long yeah. time and I, I'm a gear whore. Yeah. But yeah, look, headlamps, right? I, I can't stress them enough. It is, it is a critical tool to doing this job. All right, enough about headlamps. Yeah. Let's talk about other cool stuff for a minute, right? Uh, I do know for a fact Grand Canyon's doing POCUS. Nice. Um, POCUS being point of care labs. Ultrasound. I'm sorry, ultrasound. Uh, I'll haze him later. Yeah, he can haze me later. One of the agencies, are, well, two of the agencies I work with outside of the wilderness are doing fast exams now. I'm actually becoming a fan if you're competent with it. I actually think there's probably a place for POCUS exams in the backcountry, making determinations over things like limited resource utilization, helicopters, yes. things like that. Yeah, for sure. Right. Timmy took a fall. Well, can we carry Timmy out or is Timmy bleeding from a liver laceration and he's going to die in the time it takes us to carry him out? So if you have access to those things, great. What I meant to say, I, I got my notes screwed up. Grand Canyon is doing point of care labs. They're at, they mm. actually have ISATs in the backcountry oh, okay, so cool. that they can actually look at lab values of super sick people down in the gorge, down in the, yeah, the, the canyon. canyon, and make some critical care determinations on care based on lab values. This yeah. goes back a little bit to the urine test strip thing we were talking about. Yep. I don't think anybody... I don't, I don't think anybody in the short term is going to be carrying multi-thousand dollar point of care lab test kits that are super sensitive. And if you sneeze on them, they don't work right. <laughs> but but uh, it is a thing, right? It, it is a thing. Uh, there are point of care things for things like uh, troponin now. Uh, it takes some time for troponin to build, right? But there are some tests out there now that, that work a lot like glucometers where you can do a troponin test. You know, there's, I've seen limited use cases for that in the urban setting because typically by the time you think somebody's having a heart problem and their troponin's up, that you probably want to get them to a doctor place. Yeah. But if you got somebody that's having chest pain in the woods and they're going to be there for a few hours, being able to determine whether or not their troponin is up could be useful, right? I've not personally seen it in use, but I know they exist. Big thing that Sean and I are a fan of, the Emma. Yeah. We don't have one yet personally, but I just learned actually a couple weeks ago that you can actually breathe through an Emma. So you can blow into it and get an accurate reading. Hey, Mr. Timmy Bob, Stevie sick guy, hold this up and breathe through the straw. We'll actually give you an accurate reading on an Emma. So it doesn't have to be passive. For those that don't know what an Emma is, it is a, uh, it's actually the the latest generation is a waveform capnography device that attaches to a mask. So it looks like uh, one of the inline adapters for a life pack or a Zoll or whatever the case may be. It's a tube. But as opposed to the tube that just plugs in with the hose to the machine, there's a little screen on the side of it, a little monitoring device on the side of it. And you can actually use that. It's a pocket-sized device that you can use to read capnography and waveform in the latest edition right there on scene of your patient. 
I think they're awesome. Yeah. I would love to have the money for one. I just don't. I'm not. Yeah, see, I think the new gen ones are about. They're like almost two grand for a single unit. Yeah, they're not cheap. Yeah, but for those who aren't familiar, if you think about a portable small fingertip pulse ox, and then basically put an ET tube adapter on the side of it, and that's about the size, right? So they're nice and small yeah. and compact, and yeah, it's a really nice piece of kit. They were developed for the military, right? Yeah. So basically, yeah, yeah I put an IGL or an ET tube in you, and I just slap that on the top, whether I'm bagging you or not, or even on a crike, right? It's yep. going to give me a cap note and tell me if I'm if you're getting good respirations or not. Yeah. And for those that have not heard us say it, I'm going to say it now. Capnography is one of your greatest tools in pre-hospital medicine in general. It gives us all kinds of great information. Please use it. Yeah. And then, you know, we can go down the rabbit hole. I think it's probably worth not going down the rabbit hole. We're at almost <laughs> an hour, but ventilators, cardiac monitors. Cardiac monitors, pretty much, I'll call it part and parcel with an ALS truck nowadays. Yeah. Vents, not so much. Yeah. Um, I think there's probably a place for really, really, uh, this is more of your infrequent, but major emergency when it occurs, sort of traumatic event. Something, you know, you don't have to go down the road of like a Zoll or whatever, but like a save to vent. If you yeah. have to breathe for someone and you have to extricate them in a Stokes, the only way to do it is with a ventilator. There's really no good way to walk down a trail with a person in a Stokes and bag them effectively. Yeah, no. I'd love to say there is. There just isn't, right? This is where like a save to, again, another tool that was developed for the military, relatively stump simple vent to use. You know, if your agency has the money for it, they're not a horrible tool. I, I actually, I don't love them, but I don't hate them. Right. If yeah, it's man, what you got, I would love need to, to have reform. Access. It's better than bagging. Yeah. Oh yeah. Considerably. Yep. Uh, they're, they're a great tool. They're actually, they're made to be put in a backpack, right. Or yeah. carried. I mean, uh, so. I don't remember off the top of my head. Is the battery last like three hours, four hours, something like that? No, it's uh, I want to say eight to 12. I think the new gens that are coming out are almost 14, 16 hours. Okay. So you so can, you can, you can get a couple of batteries going and ventilate somebody for a long time. Yeah. So it's, I mean, for they're most, not perfect, yeah. right? You're not yeah. setting peep and, and, and all of that good stuff on them. It's, yeah, it's, a pretty options, it's but... basically a BVM with a motor, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a little better than that, but yeah. But it's, it's way better than trying to bag somebody while extricating yeah. them. No, I mean, that's the thing is for what, what for the environment you're going to put it in and, and the use case, it's, it's an excellent tool. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I guess that's enough of that. Yeah. And then fluid warmers, you know, I think it's probably not worth talking about all the cool guy toys that could be out there. Just be aware that if your agency has the money and the resources, don't give up with just, oh, you know, we're just going to go in the woods and do ALS. You know, Sean and I are not big proponents of warm fluids as a means of changing one's body temperature, but I think Sean and I disagree a little bit here. I am a proponent of warm fluids to not further impact somebody's no. body temperature that's not in a great place. Well, we did totally agree on that note. It's the, yes, warm fluids for all my friends, right? Everybody gets ketamine. Mm -hmm. Everybody should get warm fluids, right? If you're going to dump acid water in somebody, might as well make it warm. Might as well make it warm acid water, right? <laughs> but, and this is just purely in the wilderness context, the cost benefit of carrying fluid warmers just to give yeah. them warm fluids for somebody that doesn't necessarily, room temperature or ambient temperature fluids is not going to be super detrimental then. That's where we disagree is Mike would have a, if Mike could carry a fluid warmer with him everywhere, he would. Whereas I would be a bit more judicious with my I think I'd probably carry a fluid warmer everywhere I could once it got below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, right? 
Because once exactly. fluids have been in my pack at 40 degrees outside, I don't really want to be dumping 40 degree water into your body. And then I agree with that 100%. So, okay. I, like right now, we're recording this this particular episode in July in the mid Atlantic. Yeah. I don't need a fluid warmer with me. It is literally no. 99% humidity and like 90 degrees outside. I think we're good. Right? Yeah. I so could probably get right. that fluid water. I could probably get that fluid if I stuck it in the top of my pack of direct sunlight at a temperature significantly above what your ambient body temperature is oh, outside yeah. right now. But in general, in, in colder climates or in environments that are cold, I'm about fluid warming. Um, oh yeah. No, cold environments should be warm fluid. Yeah. Anyway, we'll do a, I'm sure we'll actually do an episode uh, talking about warm versus cold fluids yeah. and their effect on body temperature. Cause that's actually, I think, for those of you that do this wilderness stuff, that's really good information for you to know. And you really need to understand how effective or not effective it can be. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So Sean, any last thoughts? Cause I feel like I can wax poetic for a year on all the cool tools that are out there. Yeah, no. I know. Oh, wait, I'm going to throw one more in there that I'm a fan oh. of, but you don't love. Do it. You ready? You ready? Yeah. Hit pumps. Me. Yeah. Yeah. I like sapphires. Uh, They're stump simple. If you're going to be able to provide, you know, pain management for an extended period of time, I'm not a big fan of pushing ketamine in boluses, pushing people in and out of party time. You know, I'm a fan of drips, but drips don't work for crap when you're walking down a trail. Uh, You really need a pump. Sapphires are not super heavy. They're not super expensive. They're, They're not cheap, but it's a reasonable tool in today's day and age, in my mind, to give people a nice even keel on the pain management stuff, but you don't see it as worth the wait. And I can respect that. So <laughs> I still don't have that much pain management material to put into a bag to give them an even keel, except for ketamine. Ketamine. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> final thoughts, sir. I think the, uh, the only final thought I would offer is there are a lot of really cool tools that can be beneficial to the backcountry and wilderness austere medicine, like point of care, ultrasound, vents, etc. Don't get wrapped up in the cool things, just like with your normal paramedic practice anywhere in the world, right? I don't care if you are flying for the president or you are the world's greatest critical care paramedic. You got to understand all your fundamentals and have all your basics down before you start throwing in things like ultrasound. And what I will say is you have to understand that Ultrasound is a great tool. And this goes to any of these high-speed things, right? Fluid warmers, pumps, vents, everything else. There's a time and a place for them. And you got to understand when that is and when it's appropriate. So if you have access to fluid warmers and vents, yeah, it's like, do I need to take a fluid warmer, the mid-Atlantic in July and August? No. No. Not unless I'm getting somebody's coming in with a bunch of really cold blood that I'm given. And then they're going to bring their own, right? Yeah. Yep. So don't get wrapped up in technology. Know your fundamentals. Be, this is just Sean's personal opinion, but you need to be a competent baseline paramedic before you can start applying all these other things. So don't, don't get fascinated by, oh man, we should really get ultrasound or we need vent vents. Mike and I have probably had two patients that we'd really like to have had a vent with, you know, it's, you might work places that you see more of this, but then you might have a better case to purchase them or get your agency to purchase them, et cetera. Right. But mm-hmm. don't get wrapped up in the technology because, again, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to use it, know how to use it when it's appropriate. And in just something to consider, you still got to carry it there. Right. It's got to get to the patient somehow. And it's still wait. Too, right. While compact and one of the better small vents that's out there is still several pounds. Right. Yeah. So that's probably worth note that all these tools require batteries. Right. Yeah. And batteries die. Right. Anyway, I don't have any other thoughts. Um, That's really about it. 
All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to call this one a wrap and talk to you in the next episode. Notice I did not say peace, Sean. Later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.